Star Wars Andor, streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Cassian Andor, Empire is choking us. I need all the heroes I can get. From the creators of Rogue One. There is an organized rebel effort. Get a hunt started. Witness the beginning. This is what revolution looks like. Of rebellion. I'm tired of losing. Wouldn't you rather give it all up to something real? Star Wars Andor. Original series streaming September 21st. Exclusively on Disney+. Plus. 18 plus. Subscription required. T's and C's apply. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives. All while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Yomi Adegake, your host for season three of the Women's Prize podcast. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2021 and I guarantee you will be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Each bookshelfy episode, we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five different books by women. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Bookshelfie. I'm Yomi Adegoke and I'm absolutely thrilled to be your host for Series 3, where I'll be lucky enough to be interviewing some incredible women about the work of other incredible women. I'm excited to tell you that this year's shortlist is out and the six brilliant authors and their books can all be found on our website, www.womensprize.co.uk. We are still practicing safe social distancing and this podcast is being recorded remotely. Today's guest is DJ, broadcaster, podcaster and now author Annie Mack. Annie is perhaps best known as a BBC Radio 1 DJ where she currently hosts the flagship daily new music show Future Sounds. She's also an incredible club DJ playing at the world's biggest venues, events and festivals and has curated her own festival Lost and Found in Malta. Annie also hosts her own podcast Changes with Annie McManus which is all about, you guessed it, change and how people deal with it and this year she's published her first novel mother mother which she describes as a story about family ties addiction the resilience of women and the teflon strength bond that can exist between a mother and son welcome to the podcast annie how are you today I'm really good, Yami. Thank you. I'm very well. I have my five books in a little pile beside me, <laughs> ready to talk. <laughs> wow, you've got them physically. I'm That's commitment. <laughs> yeah, well, I just wanted to kind of preface this whole conversation with, um, with the fact that my memory is awful and I've been quite nervous about just talking about books because... I've realized when I started thinking about books and how I've read them and consumed them over the years that I've read all my life, but it's very kind of um, not saying the experience of reading is disposable, but the way that I treat the books is quite disposable. So I just, Mm. I just get books. I read them. I pass them on. I get books. I read them. I pass them on. And I rarely remember the authors of the books or the titles of the books. So a lot of the time I've, I've kind of no recollection of what I have actually read. And I would think that I hadn't read a book and then I'll go back to it and I'll be like, Oh, I actually have read this two chapters in. So to pick five books with, with the worst memory and then this way of reading books has been really difficult. And I've had to kind of ask a lot of people questions and try and remember stuff about my life. And you'll notice it when we go through the books that there's, there's, there's a couple of books from my early life and then three books from just the last three years and then the whole 20 years in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a blur. So apologies in advance. 
basically. Oh, no need to apologise. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so I would like to ask, firstly, where you do most of your reading, because you are obviously a very busy bee. Have you been mm -hmm. able to read more or less over the past year during lockdown? Less, definitely less. Um, I read mainly, I mean, the only time I get to read is at night in bed and um, I get kind of a chapter if I'm lucky and then I, I, I can't keep my eyes open. So reading is a luxury and it's something that I would always like to do more of and can't basically. Um, mm -hmm. And I have a huge pile of books that I'm inching my way through. So yeah, it's just taking ages and it's so frustrating. Gosh, that's interesting because a lot of people I've spoken to have been like, oh yeah, I've had way more time, but yours has kind of gone the other way. Yeah, so I mean, th there's been kids at home, which mm. kids kids are not great for reading. Um, <laughs> and I, I have a lot of other jobs that I do that kind of occupy any free time I have. Mm. So yeah, like just the idea of me sitting like on a Sunday afternoon in an armchair and reading a book is really at the moment luxurious. Um, in my holidays, when I'm not working, you know, Christmas holidays and that kind of thing, I, I did manage to read more and that was really lovely. So I would like to talk about your first bookshelfie, which is Judy Bloom. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Could you please tell me when you first read this book? Well, I'd love to, but I don't know exactly because my memory is decimated. But I, I presume, it, I checked with my friends, it was around the same time as the protagonist in the book. So kind of 12, 13, that time. Um, mm. it was, um, early secondary school. Um, and, um, it was, I get, again, I think the reason why I chose it, I, I chose it because I remembered it. I remembered the name of it. And so it must've had an impact on me. Then I bought mm. it and I read it again. And I remembered so much more about it when I bought it. Um, and it, yeah, it kind of talks about a girl growing up and, you know, getting her first period and like really wanting her body to grow and grappling with religion and the idea of religion and who she should believe in and why. And and, and um, it's just a kind of coming of age, I guess, story um, that really reflects uh, quite powerfully a lot of what I was going through at the time. So what do you remember about puberty and growing yeah. up and how much did you feel that I mean I guess when reading you related to Margaret's um, own experiences so like her I think she's 12 or 13 mm. in the book um for me it it happened later than that I think I got my period when I was 14 and I remember like Margaret in the book just feeling like it was this interminable wait and you know I remember very vividly um, going into assembly in the morning and kind of nudging my friends and telling them that I got it. And then our school w w was right beside my secondary school. I used to have to climb over the back wall to get into secondary mm. school. I remember coming home from school and my mom was out putting up the, putting out the washing on the washing line. And I remember telling her that I got it and it feeling like this big deal. And I remember it being really scary and frightening, the kind of physicality of it, you know, what it looked like and what it felt like and, and I guess what it signified as well. I remember my my one breast growing quicker than the other one and feeling like my life was pretty much over and standing in the mirror, like with my hands up in the air being like, oh God, it's, you know, what am I going to do? And not understanding that that was a very normal thing and 
you know, it's such a mad time, isn't it? It's so sensory. Mm. Your body is changing. Everything is changing. Your hormones are going wild. And, and I did write a diary at the time, but I, I don't know where that is now, um, which is a shame. Mm. But yeah, it just reflected a lot of kind of the physical stuff I was going through. And also, like I read all of the Judy Bloom books, the Deanie ones and, and all of the others. But this one specifically is pertinent to my experiences because I also did a lot of grappling with God around that age. Mm. I was brought up in a Church of Ireland um, kind of community. I went to church every Sunday because we had to, we, we, we had no choice. I went to Sunday school as well. My father was religious. Um, my mum, not so much. She came from a very, very strict uh, Presbyterian background in Northern Ireland. So I think she was kind of put off a little bit by religion because of that so she went to church but she didn't really play along and she just kind of quietly acquiesced but just did, didn't really practice if you know what I mean yeah. and around that time there was it, it was kind of in our school there was like a group of kids that were really into Christianity and there was a there was a a family and a house and that ran Christian camps uh, down in Wicklow which is the county underneath Dublin where I grew up and I started going there uh, with other people friends of mine and it became like something that I was really really into born again Christianity we we sang a lot of you know Christian music we did a lot of praying and it was really fun as well you know we used to sit and do campfires and do loads of sports and all the kind of young teenage things or like property fancying boys and all of that went on there but it was just through mm. the lens of of this kind of Christianity this born again Christianity my first festival that I went to was a festival called Greenbelt Festival in England which was a Christian festival no way I would have been allowed to go to that if it was not for the Christian aspect of that mm. so yeah my early teens were 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 kind of quite immersed in God and, and talking to God and trying to discover God and what you know what it was all about my elder brothers and sisters I had two older brothers and a sister um were quite eye-rolly about it I remember them taking taking the mick out of me like around the table and my <laughs> mom like hushing them um but yeah it was it was a big phase that I went through and then mm. I think there was an instance at one of the camps where there was someone I remember a woman talking about speaking in tongues and something about I can't remember exactly but there was a, a, something a few extreme talks from people that really kind of put me off it a little bit and made me mm. feel like this was not maybe where I wanted to go and I just kind of slowly moved out of it but yeah mm. so are you there god it's me margaret really stuck with me as a name and you know thematically really matched my experiences in early teens So your second book, Shelfie, is Peg Sayers by Peg Sayers. Now, can you tell me who Peg Sayers is and why you own a copy of this book? It's, I, 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 don't, I don't know why I chose this. I, I think, I, to me, this book is it's so emblematic of where I come from. And when you're Irish diaspora, which so many young people do, like it's a kind of very common trend to grow up in Ireland and leave Ireland at a certain age. Um, 
your kind of your idea of your uh, of your Irishness is magnified somewhat and it becomes more and more important to be Irish when you're not there you know what I mean you cling mm. on to that identity and 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 how it shapes you and how it forms you and this book Peg is basically me doing that so Peg Sayers is an Irish icon she was a shana key which is the gaelic word for storyteller and 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 she she was not remarkable at all as a woman but what was remarkable is that she told the story of her life to her son who then dictated it in 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 gaelic and it became a, a huge uh book on the Irish language curriculum. So Ireland, for those who don't know, the Republic of Ireland has a native language, which is which is which is what we call it Irish or Gaelic, and it is compulsory in Ireland to learn that up to A level um, grade. And um, Peg, the book Peg, is on the curriculum. I was one of the last generations to have it forced upon me on the Irish language curriculum and it's really interesting because a lot of people just associate this book with like oh god like the the pain of having to learn Irish in school and Peg's life was not a fun life shall we say you know she went through a lot of hardship like total poverty forced marriage you know in some of the first pages she talks about the two brothers that lived you know in her family her her mother had ten, nine or 10 children that died you know like just uh, incomprehensible like sadness and poverty and hardship um and you know she talks that the book is all about that basically and it, it you know symbolizes a lot about ireland at the time um but mainly i think for for a lot of irish people to them this just brings back their Irish lessons and the struggle of learning Irish. But for me personally, it's, it means a lot because it, it reminds me that I, you know, at, at the age of kind of 17, I was pretty much fluent in the Irish language. And, you know, we were kind of really advanced in, in terms of writing it and speaking it. And um, it also reminds me of going on to what we called Irish college. So the Dubliners, I grew up in Dublin, would go to what we call the Grail Talks, which is the area of Ireland that is Irish speaking. So it's still native Irish speaking people there. And we would stay with families and we would um, go to a kind of school every day and speak Irish and do everything in Irish and, um, and, and stay with these Irish families, kind of like going on a, like, a, like a foreign language exchange, but you're mm. going in your own country in order to learn Irish. And, um, my my time at Irish College at Gale Talks was so kind of transformative. I remember having my first proper kiss there. Um, I remember singing Eric Clapton, Are You Wonderful Tonight, in Irish to everyone, <laughs> um, and making like friends for life. So yeah, I've just I kind of look back on Irishness and and my education in Irish really fondly now. And also mm. with a sadness because what happens, what happened to me, and I think I don't want to speak for everyone else, but I think it is a common pattern, is that upon leaving secondary school and leaving that education in Irish, your speaking just drops off because the majority of Ireland does not speak Irish. And, um, you know, street signs are still in Irish. And, you know, it, it's definitely kind of laced through the English that Irish speak, but mainly it, it just dropped off in terms of just speaking it every day. So I've forgotten it all. And I'm quite sad about that. And I think I keep Peg because it's written in, in the Irish language and I kind of like just reading it and looking at it. And also my copy of it is 
been passed down from one of my brothers and sisters and it is um totally covered in scribbles and pegs photo on the front she has a beard someone's given her a beard and a moustache <laughs> and given her two dumbbells to hold poor peg and as if her life wasn't hard enough i know <laughs> no. peg. um and my, i've got my brother's writing in it and i don't know it's it's just nice it feels kind of like an antique whole oh. book so yeah Gosh, that was absolutely fascinating. I, I mean, it's just interesting how, I don't know, little you can know that that sort of happens in other cultures and countries because I'm just like this, I mean, the whole idea of basically having a language exchange in Ireland is fascinating to me and just something I've kind of had no concept of. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. I'm really yeah. interested in how the Irish language and, you know, learning the Irish language essentially has shaped your writing and how you I don't know if you do weave that into your writing because I'm reading currently mm. Mother Mother which is a brilliant mm. book so far congratulations thank you yummy thank um, you so much and no really honestly well done I was actually just saying to um one of the producers before like oh my gosh like obviously we just assumed that you'd write non-fiction and it's just a kind of brand new string to your bow that obviously I'm sure you were very much aware that you know you were brilliant at but it's just a very nice sort of surprise to see you doing fiction and just yeah. how brilliant it is so well done yeah. looking forward thank to you. finishing it amongst my other 11 books I'm oh, currently on, juggling yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah I'm interested in how you feel personally that it has shaped your writing definitely like there's there's um there's a way of speaking like the, the way the Irish speak English is is laced with the kind of structure of the Irish language mm-hmm. and I've been I was trying to think of examples for you and I haven't really found it but th- there's basically there's ways of talking English as an Irish person where you're talking in the same way that a sentence is structured in the Irish language mm-hmm. and I didn't even realize I did it till I started writing Mother Mother and you know you have copy edits and you know uh, people have different ways of interpreting English I guess and there's like the grammatically correct Queen's English you know that's that's a starting point but for me it's not my starting point really and I've learned that uh, that is just a kind of a style of writing and it's a lang it's a language in itself and, you know, one of the most um, impactful books for me growing up was Brendan Behan's uh, Borstal Boy and Confessions of an Irish Rebel as well. And, and both of them are written really phonetically. So they're written in, 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 in a language that is English, but laced with, um, with the, the way that you speak Irish. And I found that really kind of fresh and exciting to read. And I definitely want to try and kind of write like that moving forwards. Um, just anything phonetical like that. I mean, I studied contemporary Scottish literature in, in university and I loved Urban Welsh for that as well. And, you know, Roddy Doyle, the Dublin writer, and even Anne Enright, you know, she writes in a way that is, you, you can really tell, even without talking about Ireland, you can tell that she is Irish from the English that she writes mm. I mean, does that make sense <laughs> that does make sense does that very much yeah. does make sense um it's interesting especially because I mean I'm one of those people that only speaks English much to my parents dismay so I'm fascinated by yeah. linguistics and languages and just how they shape how you know we speak in different dialects and stuff so that's mm. very interesting indeed um you also moved from Dublin to Belfast to uni and then to London to work in radio I'm interested in how much your identity has been shaped by those moves and also how Irish you consider yourself now. Because, you know, you're speaking about being a member of the Irish diaspora and how common it is to, 
you know, mm. leave as a population. I would say it's quite similar in Nigeria where, you know, a lot of people reach a certain age and, and, and essentially want to leave or, or try to leave. Yeah. Do you still consider Ireland to be home? Where do you sit on that? Yeah, I do. I really do. And and it's been interesting because the pandemic in the last year has really highlighted that to me. And mm. and it's kind of, it, it's conflicting, isn't it? Because, you know, I now have my own family who see this house that we live in London as home. But I think in my heart, Ireland will always be my home. And you you think of big things in the in the pandemic in terms of your choices and and where you're going to end up and and what your priorities are in terms of what you want out of life and one of those things that really kind of kept coming up for me was all of my family are in Ireland now I used to share being in London with my brother but he's back in back at home so I do feel quite like separated over here from them mm. and I do feel drawn to Ireland as home and I and I would I kind of wrote a, a piece at Christmas time about feeling homesick for Ireland even though I haven't lived there for 20 years mm. it's definitely home for me and you know I go back there a lot I would kind of spent a whole the whole month of August there last year um my family come and see me a lot or did when they could so mm. there's still a very kind of active I have an active kind of relationship with the country. I work there um, presenting a TV show over there, a music show. Um, So I still definitely consider it home. And it means so much to me to be Irish, as I said, like way more than it would be if I stayed there, I think, because not being there just, you know, accentuates how much I, 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 I kind of, um, it means to me to be from there. And I think one of the reasons for that was, you know, talking about just learning about new cultures and stuff. When you grow up in Ireland, right, you learn everything about England. You learn everything about the empire. You learn about imperialism. You learn about um, slavery. Obviously, Ireland went through the famine where, mm. you know, a million people died, a million, million people left. Um, it's It's been through a, a kind of horrible history at the hands of the British Empire. And you learn all that. And you learn everything about England, pop culture, everything. And when I moved to England um, from Belfast, I moved to do a, a, what was it? A kind of MA in radio, this one year course in radio. I just could not get over how little people knew about Ireland. Mm. I, I just presumed that people would know the difference between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland or the fact that we have our own had our own currency and our own language mm. and all of this stuff. And it, it, I found it quite um shocking that people didn't know that and as a result of that even though I'd lived in New York for a summer and and been in Germany and kind of been around a lot I felt more foreign than I'd ever have before being in England because I felt really alien in that people really didn't know about my culture Mm. and that it was yeah it was just it was just quite a surprise for me I guess Mm. so that again just made me feel more you know attached to Ireland I suppose that is so so interesting because my mum who is I mean my mum was actually born in Scotland funnily enough right. um, and then left age three but you know you know she's lived in Nigeria I think I think she's actually lived in the UK longer than she's lived in Nigeria but she has a Nigerian accent um yeah and but she always said that when she you know she came to school in the UK she said by virtue of how little people knew about Nigeria mm. how everyone assumed mm. that you know what they'd seen on 
don't know if it was comic relief back then in the 60s, but what they'd seen mm. on TV essentially made her feel, because they had essentially no reference point, it made her feel more Nigerian. And to this day, yeah. she feels so Nigerian. She still talks about us going home. And I'm like, mum, you've lived in Croydon for about <laughs> 35 years. <laughs> and she's still, Listen, you know. I relate to your mum. I relate to your mum. And I am I am that mum that's like to my, to my son's like, remember you're Irish. Remember you're Irish. <laughs> And my yes. kid, my kid says I'm English just to wind me up because he knows it winds me <laughs> up. But it just means so much to me that they understand my yeah. Irishness and and they understand what an asset it is to have this kind of tie to this country, mm. uh, which is you know it's just so culturally rich. And also you know relating to your mum, like the, the the English curriculum, um, as we know you know post BLM movements and things you know there's a lot of work to do there in mm. terms of teaching new generations of kids about the real history of the British Empire absolutely and how that affected you know all the countries that it did and and the people that are here now how they're here now and the context of them being absolutely here oh my god something I only learned at school because I was thinking I can you imagine going to school and thinking that like as a Nigerian child or, or Nigerian parents that the empire was a good thing <laughs> because they didn't teach us anything other than oh the queen's jubilee and it's great it's insanity but yeah thank you so much for your um, second bookshelf star wars andor streaming exclusively on disney plus cassian andor empire is choking us i need all the heroes i can get from the creators of rogue one there is an organized rebel effort get a hunt started witness the beginning this is what revolution looks like of rebellion i'm tired of losing wouldn't you rather give it all to something real star wars Andor original series streaming september 21st exclusively on disney plus 18 plus subscription required t's and c's apply this podcast is made in partnership with bailey's irish cream Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Enjoying the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast? Share the literary love and be part of the future of the Women's Prize Trust by making a one-off donation to support our important work as a charity. Donations of all sizes help us to continue empowering women, regardless of their age, race, nationality or background, to raise their voice and own their story. Search for Support the Women's Prize to find out more. Your third bookshelfie is by Carol Shields and it's called Unless. What is yeah. the book about and when did you first read it? So I read it back in 2018. It was a um, recommendation from my mom. I think my mom actually gave it to me. My mom is an avid reader. She was an English and Latin teacher uh, all her life. And then she she kind of went from teaching that to being a, a kind of remedial studies teacher in a primary school. And she just recommends books to me all the time. So this was one from her. And I'd never read Carol Shields before. I didn't know much about her. I still haven't read anything else by her. I'm going to read The Stone Diaries, having read this one, though. So, yeah, it's called Unless. And it's an angry book. It's it's a book from the perspective of a 44-year-old woman who's a writer. And she's kind of entering into middle age. 
and she is starting to feel frustration and anger at the patriarchy about the kind of miniaturizing of women, how she felt miniaturized as a writer. And, and this all is kind of, uh, all these kind of feelings of anger are as a result of her eldest daughter, she has three teenage daughters, her eldest daughter, Nora, dropping out of university and basically becoming homeless by design, like wanting to, sitting on a street corner all day in, in, in Toronto with a sign around her neck that says goodness. There's nothing they can do. She won't speak to them. She won't accept food from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, her friends are di- giving her, the mum, all different things that she should do, leave her alone, call the police, all of this stuff. And she feels so helpless and confused as to why her daughter's doing this. So the book is kind of this journey from the mother's perspective of figuring out, trying to find meaning in what her daughter is doing, trying mm. to understand why. And she, she starts writing these letters to kind of patriarchal institutions, questioning um, the kind of unequalness of the systems uh, that her daughter is part of. She never sends the letters, but she writes them as a kind of a therapy for herself. And yeah, it's it's just, it's not a long book, but mm. it like the writing itself is so eloquent and it's just I was really struck by how beautiful the writing was <clears throat> but it's also really honest and very frank and just I don't know it, interesting it's kind of you're kind of following her on this journey of feeling more and more unraveled and more angry at the world and she kind of denounces the idea of charm and politeness and sincerity and just starts to kind of embrace fury and um it's just it's just really interesting like not loads happens but Mm. it just really stuck with me the book and I was reading it at a time when I had just turned 40 and I was having all these mad uh, kind of reassessments in my head of my life and what I'd been doing and 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 my motivations for it for my choices over the years and I really felt an urge to learn something new And I guess reading this book was a kind of springboard in just denouncing, I suppose, everything that I felt I should be doing and just being like, fuck it, I just want to do what I want to do. And I started a writing course, which started me off on my journey to writing Mother Mother. And like you said, it is a bit weird that I did fiction. And I guess I wrote the book Mother Mother without consulting anyone else, without speaking to an agent or a manager or anyone about it, I just started mm. writing and it was a very private experience. I did it for me and the story kind of came out of me and, and, and that was that. And then I took it to an agent and the agent was like, why didn't you write a memoir? That's what people would expect of you. And and I didn't have an answer for him. I just knew that, that, that this was the story I wrote and I mm. wrote it for the motivations of feeling like I needed to write. So I have a lot to thank that book for because for some reason reading it really helped me to just do exactly what I wanted and mm. in, in, in that context and and I got I got the book out of it. Mm. I absolutely love the fact that your mum recommended it and the yeah. fact that she lo- and she loved it for the anger in it. I think that's just amazing. Mm. Like because you said your mum reads a lot, um, but yeah, did you guys ever speak about it, discuss it after you'd read it? You know what? I don't recall if we did. I probably just told her I liked it, and she's now, <laughs> she's now. I think she's got the Stone Diaries as well, so she she's going to send me that. But um, we talk about reading a lot. She's my mum is nearly eighty now, and she is 
doing a thing now where she's going back and just rereading all of the classics. She loves the classics, wow. so she's just going back and rereading them over and over again. And she says she gets something new from them every time. So, God, I love yeah, that. she's got she's got an expansive book collection. Both me and well, all, all of us, my our siblings have really benefited greatly from it. Mm, I love that. So, you know, speaking a little bit more to Mother Mother and, the, you know, how it came about, um, you've mentioned that you've always written, whether it be sort of private journals and observations. And yeah. I'm interested in, because, you know, as you said, you took it to an agent and they kind of were like, wow, OK, like we expect you to do you to do a memoir. And that seems like the type of writing that you actually had been doing. So was it intimidating at all to make that jump from writing about yourself, writing about, right. you know, you know, that personal type of writing to fiction Mm. which is obviously quite a different quite a different skill I didn't really find it intimidating just more exciting like Mm. again maybe it was totally foolish and some people having read reading mother mother might might agree (laughs) with that most certainly not (laughs) I I didn't go into it in a kind of academic way at all Mm. it was really way more impulsive just like I'm so impulsive as a person any of my friends will tell you that I just I just really driven by impulse and Mm. it was that um so I didn't study what I thought I should write or think about it in detail and I was very encouraged actually by my friend Tiga who's a DJ recommended this book by Stephen King called On Writing which is basically a kind of how-to how in terms of writing a novel it's part Mm. autobiography part how to write a novel and it's I I just I just got so much comfort and inspiration reading that book because he talked about all of his novels just starting with a scene and not having an ending in his head when he started it and just allowing this scene to kind of grow like a spider's web and take structure and take take shape and and then kind of adding to it and filling in color and filling in detail and figuring in sense of place and that's how it worked with mother mother and that that's how it was happening and then I read this book and I was like oh thank god I don't have to have an ending like I can just keep doing what I'm doing which is writing splurges of writing and then coming back to it the next day and and kind of heavily editing it and and at the start when I had a teacher to show it to kind of really getting her to help me with what bits she thought were were working what weren't Mm -hmm. and then for the rest just kind of going by instinct but yeah it it, there was no plan it just came and then Mm -hmm. I I I had a first draft and I brought that to an agent someone told me about an agent that they knew and I met him and I liked him and he went away and and then came back and said that he really liked it and his wife really liked it which I was Mm -hmm. happy to hear and um And we then went about sending it to publishers. And what was really interesting was that, again, I I, it's also knew this world of publishing. I didn't Mm. know how it worked, but everyone was just like, what the fuck? This this is not the book that Annie Mack, people, why? We're not going to get this. She's written a book that's nothing to do with clubbing or raving or music or (laughs) anything that anyone associates her for this just isn't going to work. So we got so many rejections. People just just couldn't really understand it. Oh, my God, Yami, there was something like 12 rejections. Jesus. One person accepted it, and that person uh, was an amazing woman who became my editor. She just sent an email like 24 hours after receiving it saying, this book has just made me cry so much. Like, can we talk? And that that was... perfect because I wanted Mm. someone who was going to take the book on for 
the right reasons because it moved them rather than mm. the, the reason of me having an Instagram following or, you know what I mean? It, it, <laughs> I'm really grateful looking back that it was them. Um, yeah. And uh, so, so they've been amazing and it's now like I kind of forgot about all that for a while. And then now, obviously now when we're trying to sell the book again, it's, it's mm. you know, it, it's kind of quite interesting because people are still like, Hey, <laughs> <laughs> so, so someone on Twitter last week was like, uh, "Since when did Annie Mac turn into a librarian?" <laughs> which, which I really enjoy. A librarian, enjoyed. yeah. <laughs> oh god, just skip over the right a bit. But librarian. Well, oh, personally, I will say that it's surprising in the best possible way. I mean, I think yeah. it's interesting how you know. Um, I suppose the incredible work that you've done in music can be, I suppose, a hindrance to doing something new and something that you are absolutely clearly a natural mm. at I mean I, I again I didn't necessarily expect that to have been the story I honestly didn't think it would have been that you know you hadn't necessarily planned it it just sort of came and I think if Mother Mother is a book that just sort of fell out of you I mean then you're clearly a natural but it's fascinating that I suppose who you are was in some ways it was a hindrance yeah most definitely a hindrance yeah Goodness. and and it was it was really interesting it was kind of like how do I get past this public perception of me um and and also like I guess there is a kind of a, a public perception of, of people and I mm. totally understand that but I guess in my head there was more to it so it was yeah. kind of frustrating it was like why can't you see that there could be more to it and also why isn't it possible for someone to play music I mean my job Absolutely. is to put music together way there's not there is a lot of parallels to that with you know it's kind of telling stories but in a different way and it shouldn't be so strange if that if someone works in music creating music curating music that they might want to write a story um of words you know and we now move to your fourth book shelfie which is the green road by anne enright what do you love about this book Oh my God. Everything. I love everything about this book. I, I, I think it is so powerful. It's kind of like, I'm sure this was not Anne Enright's intention, but it feels like it. it's so exceptionally good. It feels like she's showing off how good she is because <laughs> it, it's basically a book about a family, an Irish family. I love the, the, how Irish it is and I relate to so much of it so there's that kind of personal connection obviously mm. first and foremost but it's about an Irish family of four who've all left home and they all come back to their house for a family Christmas and they have this matriarch called Rosaline and um, it, it's a bit from everyone's perspective so you're kind of you, you're, you're put into everyone's heads and into everyone's stories mm. and what is so powerful about the book is each story is so extremely different and each world that you get put in is so viscerally real mm. and so extremely different from the next. It's kind of like reading four short books, if you know what I mean. Mm. And then what's clever is at the end, all these people are joined and, and brought together and it all totally makes sense. But each world is so different and, and when you're reading it, so disconnected from the next it is quite powerful. It's kind of like, I am now going to show you how well I can write about a missionary in Africa. I'm now mm. going to show you how well I can write about a young gay man in, in a kind of AIDS infested New York City. Mm. Uh, now I'm going to show you about a middle aged woman in West of Ireland who's a housewife and a mother. And it's just each one is so different and mm. so brilliantly portrayed. And her writing is just 
like I don't even know where to start with Anne Enright's writing. I'm learning. I just learn so much from it, and and I often find myself having to stop and just reread things over and over again. There's such deftness to it. Like it, there's never an extra word when there doesn't need mm. to be. Everything is told in such a kind of condensed and unvarnished way. Some of her writing, I find, especially in her other book, The Gathering, is quite shocking. It's quite like mm. it's you know it really hits you in your chest. So in terms of a writer that moves me and makes me feel in in a really, you know, extreme way, I'd say she's she's one of those people that, that does that the most. Her and Maggie O'Farrell, it was hard not to put a Maggie O'Farrell book in, but yeah, I just think she's the ultimate. You clearly aren't the only person <laughs> because yeah. the book was um, shortlisted for the Women's Prize in 2016. So clearly, mm. you know, you are a woman mm. of taste. Um, wow. <laughs> the book, you know, focuses on a mother's relationship with her kids, as does yours. And I'm interested in that as a theme, because, you know, even in this short chat that we've had, motherhood does come up, but not just, you know, yourself as a mother, but your relationship with your mother. And then now in this book, I'm interested in, um, yeah, whether that is a theme that you're particularly drawn to yeah I mean I guess it must be yeah. it's interesting because when you write again in this Stephen King's book um he talks about the different stages of, of of a book and the different stages of each draft and one of the finals or one of the kind of not the final the final stages is this kind of symbolism and really kind of uh, coloring in any kind of symbolism and, and really pulling it out but but an earlier stage is kind of reading it and looking at themes and again when I wrote Mother Mother there was no intention of writing about specific themes Mm. and it wasn't until I I kind of went back and started writing it over and over again that I could see the themes coming out and um, yeah I mean motherhood is clearly you know a a really big deal for me I'm only seven years into being a mother and um, it's affected me irrevocably it's changed me in every way and it's obviously got a huge influence on me and also being a mother of sons Mary and mother mother is a mother of a son and I really used my own experiences there and found them really useful in terms of writing in some of Mary's experiences and bringing up her son TJ so yeah I mean it's a massive theme for me and just speaking of my own mother again she was the one who suggested that I go to Queen's University in Belfast and 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 go there through clearing because mm. she went there and um I really enjoyed being able to kind of follow in my own mother's footsteps and go to university in Belfast and uh the book is set in Belfast and Belfast just is it's a place that's very dear to me so there is a kind of there's a lot of themes of motherhood in terms of my mum showing me Belfast that being mm. the place I set the book the book being all about mothers and missing mothers and obviously being called Mother Mother. I, I wanted to mm. give it a name that I wouldn't forget and that I didn't think people would forget. Mm. So I wanted it to be very simple and quite impactful. We are on to your fifth and final bookshelfie, which this week is The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. And I would love to hear about when you read this book and what in particular stood out about it. Well, referring back to um, what I said at the start of the conversation, I have read it before, but I have no idea. Somewhere in the blur of my (laughs) 20s, I think. Um, But I read it again recently, um, actually bought it again and then realised I had it on my bookshelf the whole time. But 
I just so enjoyed reading it again and, and kind of had forgotten about how brilliant it was. And, you know, obviously the book, when you know the context of it being Sylvia Plath's only book and of how she took her own life, I think just a few months after it was published, um, it, it's desperately, desperately sad. Mm. But the book itself, in terms, just in terms of how she how she wrote, I find her writing style so light and so fresh and and just entertaining. And um, I loved, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, the first person narrative and kind of getting into her head, just how she talked about things. Obviously, she's a poet and you can really hear her poetry in the writing, but it never feels forced or overdone or over lyrical in that way. Mm. I think I'm drawn to writing that is very frank and honest and unflowery. And I feel like she does that exceptionally well. Mm. There's no spare words. You know, there's, there's never anything extraneous in, in a sentence ever. And um, I like that about it a lot. Um, I want to quickly just rewind a little bit to our conversation about um, Mother Mother and that writing process and um, just the sort of idea that, you know, people were essentially surprised by your choice to move into fiction. And obviously when I first received the book, and I saw the name Annie McManus on it, I was like, oh, okay. Like, like I didn't necessarily immediately put the two together um, until mm. I think I maybe a few pages in actually Googled the book and was like, hang on a minute. So I'm interested in, <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in that split essentially and, um, between, um, you know, Annie McManus as a, as a sort of name that you use because you use that on your um, podcast also, but then yeah. your DJ yeah. Annie Mac. And I'm interested in whether you see those as two different creative identities and what the thought process was behind those um, name choices again it was not like you know strategized in any way it was just I wrote this book and I thought I it doesn't feel right to, to, to have Annie <laughs> Mack as the author of this book because that name was given to me by an old boss of BBC as a kind of you know an abbreviation of a long name something that would be mm. nice and snappy for the radio and um that's genuinely what it was and I never wow. argued with it at the time I just kind of went along with it and I think there's an element to kind of reaching this age now where I feel a little bit like I've grown out of it and um I've also kind of grown out of that persona of being like um a you know like mad for it raver basically um, you know, I still love music and dance music and I and I still really enjoy DJing but I'm not as immersed in that world as I was mm. and uh I feel like I, I've kind of grown up a bit I suppose and uh, I wanted to use my full name because it, it, it's my real name mm. because it felt like the real me I guess it, mm. it felt truthful it felt like who I am right now and who I've always been in a way and this book is a result of me wanting to write a book since I was a child and it, it feels very true to me as a person in terms mm. of very pure and that you know there's no agenda there's no as I said strategy there's no nothing it's it just came out as a very pure and enjoyable creative process and it felt like my real name should be attached to that mm, that makes complete sense oh um, good I'm glad I also wanted to ask before we move on to um the final question 
if there's anything you can tell us about the next book you're writing um, at all, because obviously <laughs> we're super interested to know what that might be about. So the reason why I picked The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath is because that book I found really inspiring um, at the moment in, in writing this new thing that I'm writing. I loathe Yami to even call it a book because <laughs> I, I'm, I'm like 50,000 words in and I've wow. stopped writing it for a bit because I'm trying to just I'm just trying to take a big break from it and then and go back and read it. Mm. But it's so extremely different from Mother Mother. It's set in the first person, mm. um, and it's a bit of a roller coaster. It's very mm. fast paced, and there's a lot more um, kind of. It's from the perspective of a 21 year old, 22 year old woman. And um, it, it's all kind of written rather than over decades, it's written mm. over the space of about a year. So there's a lot of it that's different that I wanted to do differently. I found a lot of writing Mother Mother very, very difficult in terms of the, the research aspect of just making sure that I got everything right and mm. representative of the time. And because every chapter in Mary's past is like maybe a couple of years after the next, every song that's on the radio, every police wagon, every uniform, mm. everything that she sees here has to be right to the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a, that's a lot of work. Um, so I wanted to focus more on just like one year and really zo zone in on that time and, mm. and kind of get really immersed in it and see how it feels. Um, but it's a lot more, there's a lot of bad sex in it, a lot of drugs in it, <laughs> a lot of rock and roll. It's a lot more, um, yeah, kind of young and reckless uh, in terms of what, what the character is going through. Wow, thank you so much, Annie. Normally when I ask that question, people are very coy and it's like, oh, well, it's a book and it's a novel yeah. and that's it. But you've actually, I'm like, okay, I am very I've probably to told you way too much. <laughs> like no, no one's actually read it. I don't even know oh. if it's any good. It might not never be a book. So this might be the only time you've ever <laughs> Ever heard of it but it's it's, it's fun sure to talk about <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> i've got one last question for you and it is definitely saving the most difficult to last which is if you had to choose one book from your list as your favorite what would it be and why oh i think <laughs> it would be oh god I th it would be between um the bell jar and the green road but i think just on a personal tip just because i can relate to it so much and it really brings me back to home to Ireland I would choose Anne Enright in terms of if I had to read that over and over again it would be that one it would be the green road thank you so much Annie for being a brilliant guest today and I'm very much looking forward to the rest of the world reading Mother Mother thank you Yami thank you for reading it and thank you for having me I'm Yomi Adegake and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Head to our website, www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk, where you can discover this year's shortlist of six incredible books. You definitely want to click subscribe because in our next episode, we'll be exploring five excellent books that shape the iconic fashion designer, Diane von Furstenberg. Please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time. Ladies and gentlemen. Pinocchio, now streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Sounds like my kind of place. Director Robert Zemeckis delivers a dream come true for the whole family. I want to be real. And Tom Hanks.
excites as Geppetto. It's going to be quite an adventure. Let nothing stop you. Daddy! From experiencing the next Disney classic. And to be real is up to you. It's in your heart. Disney's Pinocchio. Only on Disney Plus. Now streaming. 18 plus subscription required. T's and C's apply.